Few people know the innards of Defense Department finance as well as my next guest. He was Comptroller and Chief Financial Officer. He was an Assistant Air Force Secretary for Financial Management. And he spent a dozen years at the Congressional Budget Office heading its defense group. Among his current gigs, he's also chairman of the Congressionally Chartered Commission examining DOD's planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process, PPBE. Bob Hale joins me now. Bob, good to have you back. Well, thanks to be here. I appreciate the chance to talk with you. And this is on the occasion following the issuance of the commission's interim report. And I guess the fundamental question, maybe people were hoping against hope that somehow this was going to be an exercise to get rid of PPBE, (laughs) ding dong, the witch is dead, Robert McNamara can rest in peace now. But that doesn't seem to be what really it was all about in reality. Uh, Well, Tom, we've conducted a lot of research over the last year and a half. Some of it included looking at partner nations and their budgeting systems, China and Russia, their budgeting systems, non-DOD federal agencies and their budgeting systems. I think we've kept an open mind about replacing the current PBBE, and we'll continue to do so through our final report next March. But we have, in the last year and a half, I think, found some significant strengths in the current PBBE and some ways to improve it. And we haven't, I think, run across a a system that is clearly better. So at the moment, I think we're probably heading toward improvement, but we'll keep an open mind as we complete our research. And if you think of the words planning, programming, and budgeting with a small PPB, then it's Mm -hmm. kind of fundamental to doing any kind of large-scale project. And so maybe maybe it's just the way the world ought to work at some basic yeah. sense. It was interesting because the Rand Corporation did the workforce on China and Russia and partner nations. And the Chinese budgeting system has steps similar to PPB. They don't call them the same thing. And they actually did a paper some years ago examining the DOD PPB system and looked at its pros and cons. And it's pretty similar to, to some that we are foreseeing now. So I think you're right. There's some similarity in what you need to do just to carry out a reasonable process. And before we get into some of the details of the interim report, maybe describe what the benefits, in fact, are of PPBE, because it started out as PPB. The E was added right. in latter years. But it has been durable for a good reason then. I think that's right. It does offer some significant benefits. Uh, one of them, it brings analysis to bear on budget issues rather than relying solely on executive judgment to choose among them, though judgment certainly still plays a role. Uh, and that analysis looks at costs for sure, but also benefits as it, it attempts to be a classic cost-benefit analysis. It also takes a multi-year approach. You really can't sensibly plan defense budgets a year at a time because what you do this year can have significant effects two or three years out. The system allows all relevant voices to be heard during this process, and, and that helps build consensus. And I think that's important in a government agency. And finally, it provides a mechanism for senior leaders to make decisions on budgets, and and budgets control a lot of the policy at DOD, and so that's important. These are benefits we want to build on. There's some shortcomings, too, and we'll talk more about them, I think, as we go on, that were areas where we think the system needs improvement. And sometimes I think people maybe conflate it with the acquisition and purchasing system which strictly it's not that. But when people see how long it takes for the actual delivery of things that have been programmed and budgeted, Mm -hmm. specifically the large platforms, then maybe the two do get conflated. What is the connection of PPBE and acquisition? 
Well, they're definitely related and uh, need to be mutually supportive. But as you say, they are separate systems uh, to do different things. I mean, PPB's job is to allocate resources, acquisitions jobs, figure out how to spend those to get things uh, that the department needs to be uh, overly simplistic. In terms of the critics of PBB, I'd, I'd mention one more thing I think is worth thinking about. Sometimes I think there's a confusion between uh, whether the system is working right and whether you won uh, in, in the system. So if you've got a great idea, but the federal manager in charge of it says, I'm just not interested and this is not the highest priority for me, maybe PBB is working fine there, although you probably don't think it is. Uh, on the other hand, if PVBE stands in the way, and it can sometimes, of making timely decisions about, say, updating technology, then that's a problem that we need to try to address through process changes. And that gets to one of the items that stood out in the interim report, and that is year of execution agility. That seems right. fundamental to the reform idea. Let's talk more about that. Okay. Well, it is important. I mean, you need the ability to make changes as innovation changes, as, as new technologies become available, and programs change in their requirements and their ability to meet them. So you definitely need a year of execution agility. And the, the commission is looking at some ways to improve it, particularly by speeding up the uh, so-called reprogramming process. Reprogram is an informal agreement between Congress and DOD that allows the department to move money around in the year of execution, but it can take quite a bit of time. The larger ones we heard repeatedly take six months or more, sometimes less, but often that or more. And that's a long time when you're dealing with rapidly changing technology. So we have some proposals in the interim report to try to speed up this reprogramming process and to make some other changes uh, that uh, we hope uh, will improve your execution agility. We're speaking with Bob Hale. He is chair of the Commission on Planning, Programming, <clears throat> Budgeting, and Execution Reform. And so that's something that the commission said could be implemented without a lot of sturm and drang to get it done. What are some of the other things that you suggested in the interim report that could be done without a lot of heavy lift to get them done? Well, let me just be clear. We had two kinds of recommendations we made, as you were alluding to. One, we did something, I think, kind of novel for a commission, at least the ones I'm familiar with. Since we had to do an interim report by law, we decided we would lay out some ideas where the commission hadn't made a final decision and then seek feedback from our stakeholders. And uh, we call these potential recommendations. The uh, reprogramming actually fell in that category of potential recommendations. And there were 10 of those in our interim report. But we also made 13 suggestions of things that we think you could do now or at least begin to implement now. And I'll give you just a couple examples to give you a flavor uh, for those, Tom. Uh, one of them, um, we heard from congressional staff that they get an avalanche of budget data when the budget proposal is submitted in a normal year that occurs in early February. But after that, the data they get from the department is episodic, only when they ask for it, sometimes it's late, sometimes not consistent with other data. The commission recommends that the department implement a mid-year budget update for the Congress that would deal with both execution year issues, but also uh, changes in the budget proposal. Some of the things that DOD sends to Congress, they... Uh, they put together two years before Congress is debating them, some even longer, and things change. And so we think this budget update briefing would be an opportunity to communicate some of those changes, and Congress can decide whether they want to take them into account in their final appropriations. So that's one of the things. I'll give you one other example. 
And that is, we think the department and Congress would benefit if DOD established enclaves or networks that allowed them to communicate better about budget information to Congress. So right now, a lot of data is sent. Most of it's sent electronically, but it's often through PDF files or, or briefings. Not easy to search, not easy to sort, not easy to update. You could establish enclaves or networks that allow you to send data in a way that is sortable, searchable, and, and easily updated. Uh, and we think that would be a good idea. Defense is looking at this. We recommend that, that they implement it uh, for both classified and unclassified data, and both going to Congress, but also coming back, information back from Congress as well. Those are the kinds of some of the implement now suggestions that we made. And one mysterious thing happened, at least mysterious to outsiders, and that was the issuance of that memo from the Secretary of Defense saying, we're good with some of the things that we can do within our discretion that came out simultaneously with the report. People said, well, how did that happen? I think a similar thing happened way back in the Packard Commission days also. Uh, well, we were certainly pleased to see uh, the memorandum access a press release from Deputy Secretary Hicks saying that she directed the department to implement the Implement Now recommendations within the purview of the commission. And I might add, although I don't know that it's directly related to the commission, we're seeing some movement in Congress. Both the Hackensack bills have some changes in reprogramming thresholds that we believe would move in the right direction. So we were encouraged um, and look forward to continuing to work closely with DOD and Congress as we move toward a final report. And we have six months after our final report is issued before the commission uh, goes away completely. And I hope we can use that time to answer questions and, and maybe um, uh, push the process along toward implementation. My guest is Bob Hale. He is chair of the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution Reform. And we were talking about some of the items that you recommended that can be done within the discretion of DOD and Congress right now. But then there are some more longer-term suggestions that might take legislation. In particular, this comes up a lot, and that is the color of money question. It comes up in the context of modernizing and the need to do things quickly and agilely. Sometimes the color of money is an impediment to that. It can be. As you're aware, I think your listeners are probably aware, the Department of Defense is required to pay for certain categories of purchases with certain types of money. So if you're buying something large, you got to pay procurement. If you're operating something, it's usually operation and maintenance, and they're known as colors of money. Sometimes it can be a problem if a program manager doesn't anticipate or maybe can't anticipate the exact kind of color of money he or she needs, they may have to pause their program while they try to reprogram or make other changes to get it in the right buckets. The commission is considering recommending for selected organizations only one color of money. So if an organization predominantly did acquisition, uh, for example, maybe it would be allowed to pay for everything it does with procurement funds, even if it's research or operating dollars. That would prevent the delays. I think it raises another issue, though, and that is it's got to be coupled uh, with some restrictions that permit congressional oversight to continue. Uh, that is a, a something that's firmly rooted in the Constitution and obviously very important to Congress. And so if we end up making uh, this kind of a proposal on color of money, I think it will come with some restrictions uh, that allow Congress to continue its oversight. 
And getting down to the plumbing level, one of the issues, and you, you know this as well as anybody, is the disparate information systems, the disparate databases. I think earlier in this interview you said sometimes right. the same numbers about the same things sent to Congress don't match. And so it's not strictly a PPBE issue, but any reform, it seems, would be enabled by somehow getting all of the information systems to line up, the business systems, such that you could get a single cogent view of whatever it is somebody wants to look at. For sure. And, and we think there's benefits to be had uh, by uh, some system changes. For example, uh, the department is currently implementing a single system to handle data in both the programming and budgeting phases of PBBE, call it the Next Generation Resource Management System. Before it came about, there were two systems, one in programming, one in budgeting. So you actually had to transfer the data in the middle of this process. So this is definitely a step in the right direction. I already mentioned, so I won't repeat, that there are probably better ways to use systems to communicate information to Congress and get it back, uh, whether it's budget justification material or, or whatever. And finally, I think another aspect of improving systems and, and management or data analytics that are becoming quite common and uh, useful in assessing budgets and some of these systems uh, would allow DOD to make better use of data analytics. And so we, uh, we encourage all of that. As I say, some of it is happening already. Uh, we'd like to see it speeded up or at least continued, and uh, it will certainly get the uh, commission's imprimatur. And that would also help people that either in the DOD or people overseeing the DOD understand maybe some of the systems which now exist as a million disparate pieces. Because what's mounted on a ship, what's underneath the ship or in the propulsion system, you know, is different from the hull. And you've got maybe thousands of individual pieces. Mm -hmm. And someone says, well, what the heck does this ship cost and what's going on with it? It could help there, too. Yes, it could. I mean, I don't want to be naive here. I don't think we're going <laughs> to be able to get rid of large numbers of systems. There are different needs for, for met by different managers. But in the PUVE area, I think there has been some progress and more can be made toward getting all the data that's used, at least in the programming and budgeting uh, processes, uh, into one system. Uh, maybe even one system that's shared among the military departments, but at a minimum one uh, that is uh, used by the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And in the work of its research, the commission you said earlier looked at partner nations as well as China and Russia. What are some of the chief learnings from outside the United States? Well, uh, as I said, Rand did this work for us, and it's, it's ongoing. They're looking at some additional nation. In China and Russia's case, I think their conclusion was the systems of government are so different that we can't uh, imitate a lot or, or don't want to imitate a lot. Plus, there are some significant failings of both of their uh, budgeting systems. And the partner nations, we've looked at three so far. They're looking at some more, uh, but they've completed work on Australia, uh, the United Kingdom, and Canada. There, one thing that came out is that those nations have more stable funding over a number of years. It doesn't change as much, and sometimes provisions that essentially prohibit anything that we call a government shutdown. Part is because they're smaller and more focused defense needs. Also, they're parliamentary systems of government, so a lot less legislative oversight. But to the extent we could find ways to imitate uh, that uh, stability, it would certainly be helpful. 
And I'll mention one other category that you didn't raise, Tom, but I think we probably learned most from it, and that is looking at non-DOD agencies and their budgeting systems. Many copied PPBE because way back after McNamara put this in effect, President Johnson ordered all the federal agencies to use it. That didn't turn to be practical. Many of them have PPBE-like systems. But they have some provisions that would be helpful to DOD, more flexibility in handling operating money, for example, and especially in uh, Department of Homeland Security and NASA, and uh, sometimes a better job of uh, evaluating budget programs, not just were they carried out, but did they actually accomplish the goals that they were set to meet. So I think we've learned something uh, from uh, those research, and, and we'll try to reflect it in our, uh, our final recommendations. And I guess we should summarize by asking, what was the fundamental charge? Everyone has lots of vague notions about PPBE, but you can't really have a commission of this magnitude based on vague notions. How would you state the real objective of this whole effort? Well, I think Congress is clear. They said they wanted a comprehensive assessment of the efficiency and efficacy of all four phases of the planning program budgeting execution system. We translated that into five broad goals that you can see if you look at our report, but improving relationships between Congress and DOD and PPBE, uh, uh, promoting innovation and adaptability better, better aligning budgets to strategy. And then uh, when we've talked about business system improvements and finally uh, strengthening the workforce. So uh, we've tried to be comprehensive in our assessment and uh, I hope that many of these changes uh, will find their way into our final report and eventually uh, be implemented. And just one final question. Many, many years ago, it was famously reported that Jimmy Carter, as president, thought he would get a handle on the defense budget by taking up (laughs) these big briefing books upstairs in the White House at night and going through them with a red pencil. That didn't last very long because it it just becomes, you you fall into a lake here. But Mm -hmm. how does it look externally, say, you know, from your CBO days? I mean, is there a way that ultimately this can be made to be understandable to the lay person that wants to understand just where the six, seven hundred billion dollars goes? Well, I think there are uh, some uh, we do an overview book uh, each year. The department does that's um, easier to understand. I mean, it's not the great American novel, uh, but I think it is easier and written at a, a higher level of aggregation. So there are uh, some attempts. I will, though, because you you reminded me of my uh, my uh, CBO and also DOD days. So, so let me. Add a thought that I, when I first heard about this commission, Tom, I thought, well, gee, I mean, we've got all these substantive problems, and now we're going to spend time looking at the process. And then it occurred to me that I spent 12 years as a senior DOD manager using PBBE generally successfully, I think, to meet the department's financial needs. But I never had time uh, to step back and ask whether the process could be improved. So busy with the substance uh, that I just couldn't do it. This commission gave me and other commissioners the, the time and the staff help to look at potential changes in processes. And I think we've concluded there are clearly some that could improve the current system. Maybe because I'm chair, but I've come away feeling that this is a useful exercise, and I hope it results in some useful changes. And pretty good reception so far from Congress? I think so. I mean, I mean they're not around uh, much. In, 
Say again? They haven't been around really since issuance of the report. Uh, no, well, we, we pre-briefed uh, key defense committees on this report, so we got some immediate feedback. And now we have asked them for feedback, and they're beginning to say, I mean, September is going to be a busy month, especially for the appropriators and uh, authorizers too. But I hope that we can uh, stick our noses in their offices again. And, yeah, I think we've had good discussions. That is not to say they're going to agree with everything we recommend. Um, but I think we've had good discussions with Congress. And uh, we've, we've definitely uh, talked to people at DOD as well. And we'll continue to talk to both groups because both have to be involved if any significant changes are going to be made. Former Defense Comptroller Bob Hale is chair of the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution Reform. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the Commission's interim report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? 
because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice, you can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that 
whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.